Good morning. When um, I realized, or was Mark was on vacation this week, and then he um, asked if I would preach, and I'm always excited to be able to preach, and especially when you can preach on something like the 23rd Psalm. I mean, how could you not get excited about that? The problem with it, though, is I imagine a lot of you are thinking, I know the 23rd Psalm, he's not going to tell me anything I've never heard before. And, you know, on one level, that may be true. I'm not standing up here thinking, I'm going to tell you something you've never heard before. But I would also say this, if you're one of the people of God and you can't get excited about the 23rd Psalm, then you need to do some sort of a test of, are you really alive? Are you really awake? Are you really whatever? So I'm going to put the onus on you, all right? So I'm going to go through the 23rd Psalm in my hope and prayer, and I've spent a lot of time reflecting on it, and I'm convinced there's a ton of incredible stuff here. I wish we had like 10 weeks to go through the 23rd Psalm, um, and yet we don't. We've got like 30 minutes. So we're going to go after it, and I hope that you'll be encouraged and refreshed in the content of the psalm. Let me give you a little background. The background's important. It's not the part to check out on. It's the part to listen to. The author of the 23rd Psalm is David. Probably most of you would have known that. And if you were to do a resume of David, you could probably, you know, you could think through some of the things. David was a literal shepherd. I mean, he actually shepherded sheep, killed bears, killed lions, killed giants. He was a fugitive. You remember, he did a lot of fugitive stuff in several different times in his life. He he got the fugitive part down. He was the king, the king with a small t, but the greatest of all human kings of the people of God of Israel, anticipating the king who would be the son of David. And isn't it interesting, the Messiah, the messianic title, one of the messianic titles is son of David. He was a sinner. Man, if I was David, there's parts of the Bible I'd love to get a big eraser and say, get rid of this stuff. And God said, no, I'm not getting rid of that stuff. But you know what the end commentary on David was? He's a man after God's own heart. And, and I think that he was a man after God's own heart because the content and the nuance of the 23rd Psalm was reality for David, not just some sort of a pretty poem that you read at funerals. For David, it was a day-to-day reality of life. And he viewed the 23rd Psalm, and as I've thought about it a lot in the last two or three weeks, it was like his statement of, here's the way I view my life in the world. It's my world life view. Here's the way I view, and it's an overarching statement of all that there is. It's not just when I die, I want somebody to read the 23rd Psalm. It's when I live, I want to read the 23rd Psalm. And I want to live the 23rd Psalm. It's a poem of beautiful Hebrew poetry that has captured the minds of people that know nothing about Hebrew and the hearts of people. It has, I, I call it a poetic drama. There's a drama going on in six verses. It's, it's incredibly compact, concise. And the drama is, it just captures you. It has actors. It has a hero. The hero's name in verse 1 and verse 6 is the Lord. He's the hero. And if you have a hero, you have to have somebody that needs a hero, right? I mean, heroes are no good if they're like, I'm a hero and nobody needs me. I mean, that's a bummer being a hero like that. He's a bummer. The needy people are called sheep in the first part. And the hero actually is called by metaphor or word picture. He's called a shepherd. And also in verse 5, the picture changes and he's called a host. He has a table set. And it sounds like a victory table. And so it's as though the, the hero is inviting these needy guests to come to his table or to be his sheep as he's the shepherd. And then there's verbs all over the place. And if you don't remember verbs from back whenever you learned verbs... Hopefully learn verbs. Verbs are those action things. I mean, he leadeth me. It's, it's, it's just verbs, verbs, verbs. The main actor with most of the verbs is God himself. And as a matter of fact, at the beginning of the end, it starts with his name. And then in between, it uses pronouns. It says he, he, he. And then it shifts from he, he, he to you. 
Still referring to the same person, it's God. The you seems a little more endearing to me. It's almost as though you I'm connecting more. The he is a little further away, but nevertheless, in all cases, he's... As a matter of fact, this psalm is more about God than it is about you. And if you want to really get the psalm, you want to really get God more than you get you. And I can tell you this, that my biggest problem in reading any part of the scripture is I want it to be more about me than about God. I want him to fix all the things that I want him to fix rather than I want to know who he is. And if you get done with the psalm and you say, I know God better than you've read and meditated well on the psalm, because I guarantee you that was David's perspective. So here's the title I've given to it, the 23rd Psalm, what it looks like to trust him, him being God. And we're going to work on the word trust a little bit. I know Nate did that some last week. It's not in the psalm, but it seems like David's statement of life And his statement of life is, when all the stuff of life, and I look at it as a whole, the picture of life, my trust, my hope, my reality is in the Lord. And I've divided it into three sections, which I think works well with the text. And I've called them three realities that make trust come to life. And here's what I hope for College Park this morning. I hope for you guys. And I hope for me. And that is that when we get done with the 23rd Psalm, it isn't going to be just, oh yeah, that's a cute Psalm, I already know it. It's a Psalm that we're going to bring into our lives every day. And every day we're going to think through the realities of life and we're going to reaffirm our need to trust in Him on a daily basis. So, the first part, and it's the first verse, and it is, and I I actually think I changed this a little bit from the manuscript. I don't really follow the manuscript very well anyway, and if you're trying to, good luck with that one. Um, Mark does a good job with it. It's got the general gist, you know. But the first part is the question of who. Or it's, who is the object of trust? And and some of you were here in the Job series. I don't even know how long ago that was when Mark was here. And he kept talking about the who question versus the why question. We we like to ask, why does this happen to me in life? Where Where is it going? What's going on? The big question of life. Here's the big question of life. It's the ultimate question of life. It's the question of who. And the psalm starts with an answer to the question of who is the object of trust. When you answer the question who, the answers to the question why, you may not get the explicit answer or every detail you want, but the answers become much more satisfying after you've answered the question of who. Now watch how the psalmist does it, and it's really cool. He starts off with, and the first, the first word that's used in there is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm sure you all know that verse. So your memory assignment for tonight is going to be memorize Psalm 23.1. Now, how many have already done your assignment? I mean, don't you love those assignments? You know, I've got them done right when I'm assigned. There you go. You've got it done. Here's your harder assignment, and that is to really trust that the Lord is your shepherd and you shall not want. There's the challenge. And here's the way this breaks down. The word Lord, and in your good English translations, which means if yours isn't like that, get rid of it. And I'll give you another Bible for free. I'll find one and give it to you. It should be all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And I know it's that way in most of your translations, and I think maybe it is in all. That's different than if you're in the 22nd Psalm, just up like two verses before that. In the 30th verse, it says, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. And there it's capital L, small O-R-D. Seems like not a big deal. It's a huge deal. Now, now here's why it's a huge deal. When it's all caps, it's the Hebrew name that I think many of us have heard. It's the name we think is pronounced Yahweh. It's a four-letter Hebrew word. 
And it was a word that when the Hebrews would come to that word for God, they would, it was, it was the holy name of God and the scribes, the Masoretes, who were, were some of those that, that transcribed and copied the scriptures, they would never utter the word. It could not come on their lips because their lips were corrupt. And how could corrupt lips take the name of a holy God and put it on those lips? So they would insert the name Adonai, which is L, small O-R-D, for Yahweh. They would never utter Yahweh. They would only say Adonai because God's too holy. How can I even say his name? I have no right to say his name. The name Yahweh was also used frequently in the Old Testament when <clears throat> when there would be a covenant discussion between God and man. And covenants are this. They, they, it can sound kind of complex. It sounds sort of lawyerish. It's more like relational. God and man want to enter into a relationship. The term that's used in the Old Testament is they're going to enter into covenant. As a matter of fact, when we partook of the Lord's Supper, the right verbiage to use is this is the new covenant. It's a relationship between us and God that's able to happen, as Tom mentioned, because of the blood of Christ, because he gave his body for us. The Old Testament, that verbiage would be used. The New Testament, the person that deals with covenant that allows us to enter a relationship with God is Jesus. In the Old Testament, his name was Yahweh. It was covenantal verbiage. And, and here's another thing that I think is incredibly interesting, and that is that not only was it the holy name of God, the covenant name, and both of those sound a little stiff, but it was the personal name for God. It was the name that moved him away from just an abstract deity or the man up there or even God, the Hebrew word for God is El, because there are a whole bunch of Els all over the place. He's the only Yahweh, one and only, and it's his personal name where he enters into relationship with his people. And when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, he meant a lot by using that word Lord. It reminds me of a number of years ago, College Park used to meet down in a warehouse, and some of you are familiar with that. It was west of Michigan on 96th Street. And I remember there were like 120 people there when I first started coming. And there was a piano player. And it was a girl, woman. When do you move from a girl to a woman? I don't know. But anyway, it was an older girl, woman. And she was a cute piano player. And I remember sitting there thinking, there's a cute piano player. And after a couple weeks of thinking there's a cute piano player, I thought, I'd like to get to know that cute piano player. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? I'd like to know that cute piano player. So I really, I thought about this. And by the way, for you young guys, some good counsel for you. If you wanted to get to know cute piano players or other, maybe they're not piano players, whatever they are, you don't call up and say, hey, is this the cute piano player? It just doesn't go over very well. Here's what you need to do. and Write it down. Figure out their name. Find their name. So I went and talked with, I don't even know who, and I said, okay, what's this cute piano player's name? Her name was Kathy. So when I called up, it just, it just felt smoother rather than saying cute piano player to say Kathy. And then I was hoping she knew my name because you know how that, I mean, some guys, you girls don't understand that, but when they're calling and they're, I hope you know who I am when I'm saying, hey, Kathy. Fortunately, she did. And what that does is it moves from that abstract to a more relational, right? And then what we did is I thought, I want to get to know this Kathy, i.e. cute piano player, a little bit better. And we got to know each other better and better and better to move from. I remember the day she walked down the aisle in this very auditorium, which when we moved to the new auditorium, for some of us old people, it's going to be like, man, there's something here in that old, because a lot of things have happened in this room. And we walked up here and before God, we covenanted. I mean, it was a covenant together and we used each other's names you know, she used Joe, I used Kathy, and then we covenanted together and walked out, and I still call her Kathy, but there's something that's deeper and more intimate. And when you read the 23rd Psalm, you ought to know David's heart. 
It's not just an abstraction. It's not just, oh God, you're like the rich, powerful, you got all the stuff that I wish I had and I hope you'll give it to me. It's no, you're my God. You're a personal God. All that's in that name, Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd. And the word shepherd, I just read a book for a class that I'm taking at Southern Seminary and it was, it was a fairly thick, kind of academic book. And it dealt with the use of shepherd in the Bible. You ought to, you ought to go home this afternoon and you ought to do a go. go if, if you don't know how to do it, I can help you. You can just send me an email and I'll send you like 100 pages of stuff. Um, so you probably don't want to do that. But just do a search of the word shepherd in the Bible. Starts in Genesis, goes through Revelation. It's an intriguing study of what the Jews and in the New Testament, what the church thinks of shepherd. That word is huge. It's a great study. It was used of God in Genesis, also in this chapter, right? God's called a shepherd. It was, it was used of the king, not just David, but David was the literal shepherd, but then he moved into a role of the shepherd of the people of God of Israel. It was used of uh, Jesus, where in, you remember one of the really cool chapters that goes right along with the 23rd Psalm is John 10, where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And, and if you think Jesus wasn't thinking of Psalm 23 when he said, I am the good shepherd, maybe he wasn't, but I think he was. Uh, and I think that the Jews would have understood that as well. So the shepherd motif is a picture that was used of God, of the king, and it was used of Jesus himself, and it's that picture of caring. It's that picture of providing. It's the picture of leading. And the leading doesn't always go exactly where you want the leading to go, but you know who's the leader. It's the who question, right? It's Yahweh is my shepherd. He's the one that leads. He's the one that goes after. You remember the, the parable in the New Testament of the 90 and 9? 99. That's a, 90 and 9 is 99. Which assumes there's a 100. That's the way it works. And one's lost, 90 are there. The shepherd goes after. And the picture is the shepherd would do whatever it takes to get the one out of the 90. That's the way shepherds were viewed in Israel. Some of the pagans looked at shepherds as being despicable, but the Jews didn't. The Jews were by vocation shepherds, typically. Or they were herders. Uh, and, and so it's a great term to use. And when David says that, David says, Yahweh, my, the personal God of Israel, the one I'm in covenant with, is my shepherd and provides for me. And then here's the word you can't miss. The small words are always the best. He's my shepherd. That little pronoun, because he could say the Lord is the shepherd. And that could be a good theological statement. He is the shepherd. But for David, he moved from being the shepherd to being my shepherd. And, and I think for David, that's a statement of life. And can I suggest this for you? It ought to be a statement of life for you as well. Or at least the question this morning is, who is the shepherd of your life? Because then David makes that next great statement, I shall not want. And, and I don't think that means I get everything I want. I wanted this car. I wanted this house. I think it means I shall not have any needs. Here's what David had discovered in life. And that is when he understood the who, the question of what he needed was defined by the who. What I need is filled in who he is. (laughs) There's something incredibly profound about that and something that I miss a lot of times on Monday when I wake up and the life or the stuff of life starts coming at me and I think, okay, I've got to deal with the stuff of life and so then I become my own shepherd or I hear somebody else and I think, I think I'll follow that shepherd or even at times my lust becomes the shepherd that drives me in life and what I ought to do and what you ought to do is we ought to wake up every morning of our life until we come to the last morning of our life. And we ought to say, today, the Lord is my shepherd. And I shall not want. (laughs) That's...
the who question. And, and let me make just one other statement. And I think this is really cool. And this hit me probably on the beach because I was on vacation last week and I was meditating on this 23rd Psalm and also just a little anxious at times about I got to preach when I get back from vacation. But you know what? Then I had to read the 23rd Psalm and say, relax, <laughs> the Lord's your shepherd. The key to trusting is to knowing the actors and their roles in life. And that may sound really obtuse to you, and it seems really, really profound to me, because here's the problem you and I have with life, and that is we don't know exactly who is the actor in life and what they're supposed to do. We think we're the shepherd on occasion, and then we start following our own lead, like I'm leading myself. Okay, I'm not even sure how to move my head when I do that. Then I find out I'm in a mess. Because we followed our own desires or we follow someone else or we're not sure who the real leader is. This psalm affirms it and affirms it in no uncertain terms that the only shepherd that at the end of the day you'll say, I shall not want, is going to be Yahweh or I think the New Testament interpretation of that would be Jesus. He's it. And so the question becomes this. Is that good enough? See, for some of us, it's okay on Sunday. I like to go in there and I want to sing about Jesus and I want to follow him. But then when I get out of church on Sunday, I got other things to do. And there's other leaders in life that I'm going to follow. Here's what David affirmed. And, and I don't know if this was at the end. Of, I don't know when he wrote the 23rd Psalm. But somewhere, it was his affirmation in life. There's one shepherd in my life. And he's the one that I'm committed to. And, and he's a holy God. He's in covenant with me. He's personal. And he's my shepherd. And here's what I've discovered. And that is that I'm not going to have any needs. So the who question is crucial. Now, the next question is the why question. And I think this is a valid question to ask, too. But ask it second. Because that's the way it flows in the text. Why should I trust him? Okay, you've told me who he is. Why should I trust him? And the psalmist spends two, three, four, five, however many verses that is, talking about the why. Here's why you ought to trust him. And and we're going to have to go through this really quickly. But there's two pictures, and I've already mentioned this, of the why trust him. G or, or, or Yahweh is described as a shepherd in verses 3, 2, 3, and 4. And then he's described as a host. And in the shepherd picture, I think what, he's, what the psalmist is trying to say is that here's why you can trust him, because you can be secure in him. He's the shepherd. He'll keep you secure. And then the host part, which is in verse 5, is you can also trust in him because he gives you significance. He gives you security and significance, the two needs that humans have. You can feel secure. You're not going to have any needs. And he also defines you and tells you, here's who you are. You're one of mine and you're with me. Now, let's watch how this thing flows out because it's, I think, really cool. Look at verse 2. Here's why you ought to trust him. And you're already familiar with this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You know, when I read that, I think, wow, I wish I could live all of my life in green pastures, and I've actually never lived in a green pasture. I don't even understand sheep, except I've seen them at the state fair, and that's enough for me, frankly. That's probably even too much for me, because I've seen what, I don't even, sheep or I don't know. But in their culture, it was a big deal for them. But even when I think of that, I think more like sound of music. You know, the hills are alive, and there's like this green thing. That's more my style. Or maybe... You know, I'm along the ocean and the waves are just coming in and I'm just sitting there. Green pastures, still waters. I think both of those go together. And in their context, for them, it would be like an oasis. And I remember when I was a kid, I don't even know if cartoons do this anymore, but there would always be a character that's out in the desert and he's, you know, he's, he's just, he's in bad shape. And suddenly he sees 
Ah, there's fresh water and there's green stuff. And then he goes up and it's not really there. I've always hated those cartoons. It was like, all right, why bait us with that? And then I realized mirage, that's a new word. And I'm sorry, I don't care if that's a new word. I still don't like it. But the point is there are oases, however you pluralize oasis. And, and that a shepherd, a good shepherd knows how to bring his sheep and knows when it's time to get to one of those places. And there's a whole lot in that, that metaphor, I'm sure. But it's, it is a metaphor of, that's, that's very positive. Then the next word or the next concept in verse uh, three is he restores my soul. So I'm brought to this place where my needs are provided for. Then my soul is restored, which, by the way, we, we read that very positively and we should. But you know that if your soul wasn't depleted, it wouldn't need to be restored. I mean, as tranquil as this psalm appears, when you really get into the psalm, it's in the midst of tough stuff of the reality of life. That's where God is. Um, and I think he's also there in the good times of life. He's also there when things are really mellow and they're fine. God's there. But it seems like when we're more sensitive is my soul needs restoring. He's the one that restores my soul. Or you go on the next one. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And, and, and there's that leadership of God. Not only does he provide for our needs, not only does he restore us in the fullness of who we are, but then he gives us direction in life. And, and I don't know about you, but there are times when the paths of righteousness weren't the paths I wanted to go on. It reminds me of my... I've got a year and a half old grandson, which I have pictures of as well, just in case. And we just got done with a vacation at the beach with him. Parker's his name. And he has a cousin whose name is... Eh, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so he's down at the beach. He's learned how to walk. He's learned how to run. He's also learned how to not come back when you tell him to come. It's amazing. The depravity of the little vipers that are grandkids. And so I'm wanting to lead him in the paths of righteousness. And he's thinking there's other paths. And I'm looking at him saying, all right, you're a lot smaller than me. You don't know everything I know. But I do a lot of the same stuff you do. Because the good shepherd is saying, I'm going to lead you on paths of righteousness. And then the last... There's four kind of descriptions of this security that comes from the shepherd is the one that we're probably most familiar with. And it's this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And, you know, that's the part I'd like to erase out of the text because here's what I think. If you're a good shepherd, you avoid the valleys of the shadow of death. That's what good shepherds do. Unless I start off with the who question. And I affirm who he is. Then when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll say, you're the good shepherd. You are my shepherd. You care about me. You're personally related to me. So somehow you must know what this is all about. Now, I I did some study on the valley of the shadow of death. It's an interesting nuance in Hebrew. And I, I read a commentary and the guy interpreted the valley of the shadow of death as a wadi. Now, how many of you interpreted the valley of the shadow of death as a wadi? You're just thinking, I know that's a wadi. Somebody I thought raised their hand. I didn't until I read this commentary. And I came to the conclusion that I've heard the word wadi before. And maybe you haven't, but some of you are probably more read than I. And here's where I heard of it. It was in an 8 o'clock Bible class that I took at Cedarville College like a few years ago. And and 8 o'clock is, I mean, the most interesting topic when you're in college at 8 o'clock is terrible, right? But if it's Bible geography and you get hundreds of pictures like that, you're like... Yeah, this is, uh, I can't wait till this class is over. Um, and we learned about wadis, and wadis are, here's what a wadi is, just in case you didn't know, maybe one or two of you didn't know what a wadi was. It's, you can see, there used to be a river going through there, and the river dries up. And when the river dries up, it's called a wadi. Sometimes it's deeper than others. They're all over the place in arid-type climates, and they're all over the place in Palestine. This is wadi kelt, Q-E-L-T, if you want to Google it, which I did. 
and that's how I got that picture. Uh, and it, all the wadis look the same. There's a bunch of wadis and a bunch of wadi pictures and a bunch of people who study wadis and I don't really care about wadis, except when I come to this psalm, the idea is the shepherd is leading the sheep and we like the pastures, we like the places of refreshment, but there are also, to get to those places, sometimes you've got to go through wadis. And, you know, the wadi, again, I don't relate to wadi. I hope wadi, someday I hope I can get over to Israel and see a wadi. But for us, a wadi might be sickness. You know, I mean, who wants to go through sickness? I don't. Or financial stress, or broken relationships, or even physical death, which I think is the ultimate statement of what's wrong with the world. And before you get to that ultimate statement, which we're all going toward there, unless the Lord comes back, we're going to have little tastes of what's wrong with the world, because I can't wait for the new heaven and new earth. And I can tell you this, there's no wadis in the new heaven and new earth. Wadi free. That's pretty cool. And, and that's literally true, and it's also figuratively true, where there's going to be that sense of paradise. But between here and there, you're going to go through, and the sheep are led. You even get the reality that God doesn't just say, uh-oh, you got in a wadi, what a bummer. It's as though he actually led you there. So don't let God off the hook when you're going through some of the tough stuff of life. Say, all right, God, because here's what the psalmist says. You are with me. Even though I walk through the wadi, it's, you know, it feels better to say through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know if that feels better or not. Maybe it feels better to say wadi. Even though I walk through that, whatever it is, if it's some course of life that I'm taking out that's difficult or the end of life, you are with me and that is enough. I had a couple of illustrations of them. I just want to give you one. It's one that's kind of emotional for me. I remember in 2003, <clears throat> my mom, and some of you knew my mom. She was a member here at College Park, and she got some kind of illness, and the doctors had trouble diagnosing it. And one of the things that was, in hindsight, sort of funny is her arm would sometimes just start floating up. They're like, And she would laugh, and we would kind of laugh, but not really, because arms don't just float up. And it was a neurological thing, and the doctor was struggling. You know, the brain doctors were struggling to figure it out. And finally, we're over on 86th Street, and we get called into the room that you don't want to get called into. And so as we're called into that room, I was, I was kind of hoping the doctor would say, you know, got bad news for it. it's a bad stroke, it's going to be hard to live with, but... You know, but he called us and he gave us all the doctor stuff, you know, the big words, rare disease. She's probably got two years to live, or excuse me, two weeks to live. I'm thinking two weeks. That's, that's, that doesn't feel like very long. And I remember then, and here's one of the challenges, if you're the oldest son, Don, my younger brother, he's only a year younger. But anyway, he would probably have been more proficient at this, but I got the job of going and telling mom. So, you know, nobody signs up for that job. So I go in there, and Mom wasn't able to talk. And I thought I would only break up in the first service, but I'll get over it. And, you know, many of you have gone through the same kind of experience, so it's not just me. But I went in there, and i like, what are you going to say? Because she was wondering, you know, what's wrong, and I don't know all the doctory stuff. I didn't, And she wasn't at a point that she even needed to know all the specifics, so I said this to her. I said, the doctor said... Um, that, and, and it wasn't literally what he said, but it was my interpretation of it, that you're going to go and be physically with Jesus. And she kind of whimpered a little bit, which that was really a kind of that just, oh, you almost wanted to just melt. But just a little bit, and then never again, for, and she lived for a week after that. Because I know my mom, and I remember talking to her before this, when she wasn't at the end of life, and things were going okay. And, and 
her hope was not that life would be a bed of roses. Her hope was that he'll be with me. That was her hope. And it got her through life. And then it came to the end of life. And it got her through death. And it isn't it got her through death. He did. He was there. He was with her. It didn't make it easy. I mean, tears flowed like mad. And I still have trouble talking about it without at least some level of emotion coming up. But it's emotion that isn't like the emotion of one that doesn't have the Lord with them. And, you know, not just physical death, but all the other stuff of life. Here's the reason you can trust in the Lord, you can trust in Jesus, is because he is with you. And most of us say, all right, if you want to be with me, that's all right, but I still want to do my own thing. And here's what God says. If I'm with you, I'm the shepherd. We're not negotiating who's shepherd. And if you follow me as the shepherd, you're going to find that you don't have any needs. And I've proven myself faithful time and time and time again. And sin is when we say, you're not good enough. So the Lord is my shepherd. He provides security. And then the next time, we've got to go through this really quickly. He also provides Not just security, but significance. And that's in verse 5. Verse 5 really has jumped out at me in this in this text. Because the scene changes, and it changes really quick. It's like if we were up here doing a drama, you would have seen this shepherd stuff, and you would have said, all right, there's a wadi, there's, okay, okay. Then they would do an intermission, the scene would be off, and there would be a table spread, like this table. Which I think when Jesus talked about the table of fellowship and communion... In the New Testament, I I think he may have been thinking of the 23rd Psalm. There's a table spread before me in the presence of my enemies. It's a table, you know, what are enemies doing there? (laughs) Can I tell you why the enemies are mentioned? Because it's a victory table. It's a table that says, we've defeated the foe. We've defeated evil. And I I tell you what, the ultimate statement of the defeat of evil is at this table. And and I I wish we could have all thought about this morning. I did because I knew I was preaching the sermon. That when you partake that cup, it's a victory cup. Isn't it? It's the blood of Christ that is the victory. And Tom mentioned that. It's the victory over all of evil. It's the victory over all wadis. It's the victory over death. You partake of it. And it doesn't save you. But it is an engagement with the reality of who Jesus is. The table is spread. And it's only for the ones who are a part of the family of God. Because the enemies are on the outside saying, we hate him, we hate him. And it's the people of God that are there partaking of that table. And David had experienced that in a little bit different sense than we do. So there's a table spread before me in the presence of my enemies. And then you anoint my head with oil, which I think is a statement of you've given me a position of honor like a king is anointed or like a priest would be anointed in the Old Testament. And it has nothing to do with what I've done. It's kind of like New Testament justification. It's everything that God's done. He anoints my head with oil. And then you know what the statement that the redeemed of God say? My cup runs over. Count your blessings, even in the wadis. Count your blessings. Name them one by one, and you can't name them one by one because it's just they get so overwhelming. Count your many blessings, and you'll see what the great shepherd has done for the people of God. So you see, the first question is the who question. The second one is the why. Well, let me tell you why. Because he's provided security and significance, and that's all I need. And for those of us that have walked with God for any length of time, you've got to affirm that he's been the faithful shepherd. Well, the third, and man, this is so cool, is the how long question. So the trust question, who do I trust in? Why should I trust him? How long do I trust? Lord, how long does this have to go on? And and there's two statements in verse 6. 
And, and they're both really phenomenally cool. And I'm just want to, I gotta brush through them real quick. It says this, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You know that verse. The term goodness and mercy, both of those are terms that are frequently used in the Old Testament in covenantal verbiage. In other words, when there's a covenant between God and man, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be merciful to you. Or a better way even to look at it, I'm going to be loyal to my covenant to you. I'm never going to break my covenant. That's who I am. I'm a covenant-keeping God. And then the picture is, and somewhere, somebody, I think it was Spurgeon, said that it's like the hounds of heaven. It represents who God is. Goodness and mercy pursue you all, most days of your life, three-quarters of your life days, or maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. God is pursuing his people. And some of us have experienced that too, haven't we? The pursuit of God after us. The 99, and we're the one, and here he comes. And then when he comes, we're like, thank you, Lord, because left to myself... I'd be the little kid out in the ocean that goes out and gets drowned. But thank you, Lord, for coming and rescuing me on a regular basis because God is committed to his people covenantally. And then look at the last section. It says, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh. Same word, same name that's used. And I'm going to do that forever. The terms that are used in verse 6 are these forever, all the days of my life. And I don't think it's just talking about duration. I think it's talking about relationship. It's saying that God has covenantally committed himself to his people. And then I think there's a little bit of a question in that last part. And that is the question of, so have you covenantally committed yourself to him? Do you really want to live in his house forever? And, you know, the idea of house, which is another beautiful biblical theme that goes throughout all of the scripture, is not just location. It isn't, man, we got this really cool mansion somewhere, which, by the way, that's a horrible translation of John 17. It isn't, in my father's house are many mansions. It isn't like, go to heaven and you're going to have this really cool house way back on the back. You're, you know, you know where you're going to be? You're going to be in his house. And I don't want to be in some big mansion outside of that. I want to be in God's house. And it isn't just a literal house again. It's more, I'm going to be in the presence of God. It reminds me, and I'm going I'm to do this illustration. We were, we were on the road vacation last week, and in South Carolina, we went to the Hampton Inn, somewhere in South Carolina, and we got one of these. You ever gotten one of those? It's a thing that gets you in the door of your room. And I asked them if I could, so I didn't steal it. I said, can I take this? And they said yes. So then I felt like, okay, if I use it as an illustration, nobody's going to... And you go in there, you click it, you know, and I'll give it to you after the third service, because I need to use it one more time. And it won't get you in the room, because <laughs> they do whatever the code is they do, and you know... And then I came home and here's the other thing I got. You know what that is? You could probably, maybe you can't guess. Maybe it's that obtuse. It's the key to my house. You can tell how secure I am. It's like, man, you need a better key than that for your house. But the key to my, when I came home and we came home and, and there's something different about the motel than home, right? I mean, it just is. Home is kind of where I define myself. It's like, this is where I am. This is me. This is just, eh, I go there every now and then. I'm glad I got in because I need to sleep. But then I discard it afterward unless I'm going to use it as an illustration. Here's who I am. Now, here's the question. I wish I had a long time to embellish this and I don't. Because you see, here's what God offers to his people. He says, you can dwell in my house, which isn't just a house. You can be in relationship and fellowship with me like when my kids come home and they're in the house and everything seems right just seems correct. I don't, when my kids come and my adult kids and they live on the East Coast and that's, they're sinning and someday they're going to move to be closer to me, I hope. But until that day comes and they visit, I don't say, hey, I got a motel room for you down the street. You know what I say? Hey, your room's ready. 
and it's in our house. And here's the question for the people of God. We like these little excursions we get to take out of the house of God. We think they're going to fulfill us. We like our little, okay, I'm going to do this for, I'm going to do that. Somehow it's going to fulfill me. Here's what the psalmist said, and he affirms it, and I can guarantee you that it's true because the scripture says that if the Lord's your shepherd, the only place you ever want to be, ever, is in the house of God. And the house of God means you're connected, related to him. He's yours and you're his. He knows your name. You know his name. You're in fellowship with him. And that's the sweetness of the 23rd Psalm. It's knowing the question of the who, the question of the why, and that question of commitment. It's like with an eternal value in view, I live my life not with this, but with this. Committed to who Christ is and who he is for me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. Lord, what a phenomenal psalm, and my heart is incredibly overwhelmed with gratitude that you included this in the text of Scripture. And Lord, may we today be people that commit ourselves to knowing the who, to appreciating the why, and to committing ourselves for the duration. Lord, that it's forever, and it couldn't be any better than that. And Lord, if there's some here that don't know you, I pray you draw them to yourself. If there's some here that are grieving with some of the incredible challenges of life, may they find the incredible consolation that comes from you being with them. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. We'll be here this morning up front. If you've got some needs, if you don't know Christ, we'd be glad to pray with you. Thank you. God bless you.